You're listening to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Jim Strang, chairman of HG Capital Trust, a fellow at the London Business School, and a senior advisor to well, a list of private equity institutions in the true A-list. I can't think of anyone who's better tapped into the global private markets industry or can analyse it better. Speaking to him feels like being at the very top table, so I hope you enjoy this. Jim, welcome back to Fundshack. Since we last spoke, your uh, repertoire has increased somewhat. I was looking on LinkedIn at your CV and you've got like a laundry list of A-list private equity roles, it seems to me. Do you want to tell us what you're up to? Yeah, yeah. Good to be back. And thank you for uh, welcoming me back in a, a cooler climate than the last time we met. <laughs> it's not 150 degrees. Uh, yeah, so I do a, a lot of different things. All It all rhymes though. So a couple of public company roles, board roles. Um, probably the one that's most notable is HG, which um, HG Capital Trust is the public company which invests in HG's funds. It's HG's biggest investor. Been around for 40 odd years. And I chair that. So that is really, really just trying to keep that momentum going. Companies, mm. you know, had a great run. I'm just trying to maintain that. Um, the Business Growth Fund is a... Um, is an entity that was set up just after the uh, sort of GFC. It's ten years old, more or less. It's a three billion pound balance sheet. It's uh, funded by the banks uh, in the UK, uh, and it is um, it's a four hundred company portfolio of SMEs in the UK. So it's it's fascinating stuff, and it's everywhere from um, Aberystwyth to Aberdeen to you know you name it. It's everywhere. So very interesting business, lot but very different in scale. Um, I'm a professor at London Business School. So I, I teach the MBA class in private equity, which I've done for a while, but I've, I've sort of done more of it over the last couple of years. And that is, uh, is great fun and uh, it certainly keeps you on your toes. And then I've got some advisory things that I do. So probably the the the, the ones that are more notable, um, they're CVC, so working with um, the CVC guys around lots of different stuff to do with what they are doing. Um, the private equity group at Bain, where um, I used to work, and from which I uh, I actually met my wife there, so it's very very close to my heart. Um, so working with them on lots of stuff, so that that and has been really around uh, working with GPs on what they're going to do, so GP strategy, and then also LP strategy, what LPs are doing, which has involved things like how you're creating new LPs or optimizing existing ones, and and I've that's been the most fascinating thing. Anyway, lots and lots of stuff to talk about there. Um, Hamilton Lane, where I um, joined in 11, so 12 years ago, still advising there, just sort of one tentacle of the octopus basically attached to the mothership, um, which is nice to be able to sort of stay connected and, and watch that business grow. Uh, and then Campbell Lutchins, where um, Andrew Seeley, who's the CEO there, is someone I've known for a very long time, and, and he asked me to give him a little bit of help on a couple of topics to do with what they're doing, and I'm very happy to do it. So that's my sort of slate, um, which is a pretty full one. But um, it all, as I said, I mean, it all, it's all broadly, roughly in the same area, but lots of different parts, and um, keeps me uh, keeps me pretty busy. In Jim Strang's view, what's what's going on in the, in the market? How, how would you characterize it at the moment? Well, I suppose if we're looking at last year, then rolling it into this. Last year was obviously an incredible year. So in terms of the capital that was deployed, the capital that was returned, it was it was sort of record breaking. Um, and obviously that segued into fundraising, which is, you know, as everybody knows, this year is there's more certainly in Europe, there's sort of more more capital trying to get raised than ever before. The 14 of the 15 biggest funds in the market are all trying to raise money. Um, so, you know, huge activity level. And and actually the other thing is performance has been cracking. So the sort of recent vintages have been really good. 
Um, and that's sort of generated where we are. So if you look at it, performance has been incredibly robust. It's held up remarkably well. Um, GPs have taken advantage of that. They've invested a lot of money fast. So they're nearly, well, most many are ahead of the run rate. Um, and they're trying to raise bigger pools of capital. And, and this all rhymes with the things we do at Bain. So we don't talk more about that. But that's kind of where, where things are at. Um, asset class is broadening in sort of multiple dimensions. So the expansion into the adjacent asset classes from private equity, so um, growth capital, venture capital, you know, knockout years for both. Private credit keeps growing, real assets keeps growing. Um, and then the sort of the structural solutions, which is the, the sort of wealthification of it all. So the semi-liquid structures um, keep growing and you know, the, the customer pool that is addressed by private markets keeps growing. So it's basically grow, 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 grow. It's growing mm. everywhere and getting more and more complicated. Mm. Um, and then for investors, I mean, the flip side of that for investors has been, it's, it's sort of been a bit a bit too much too soon. So, I mean, their investors, particularly the big institutional ones, are trying to figure through how we manage it all. Uh, you know, there's just there's just too, kind of too much happening basically. And, and it's sort of creating indigestion in the system, which is what we're feeling now. And then as we're going to roll forward into this year, obviously the geopolitics has thrown everything for a loop um, and looks like it'll stay that way for a while. And then also you've got the inflation effect, which is obviously unprecedented really for the industry. And we, you know, we haven't seen inflation numbers like this for 40 years. And 40 years ago, there really wasn't an industry. So it's kind of a, we've never seen this before. Um, and and also the, the sort of the rollover effect of the geopolitical and the inflationary environment and the industry cycle is sort of specter of, of a recession. So, you know, the fascinating mix of stuff going on. Um, and that's kind of where we are. So it's a, it's a riddle. So you, yeah, it's a riddle. So you've just given us a great agenda for a discussion, I'd say. I mean, let's start with um, with, with with the market at the moment. I mean, my, my view though, is it sounds like there's great momentum in the market, but 2020 felt a little bit slow. Why is it suddenly um, taken off? Why, for example, I think private equity buyout to something like 30% of M&A at the moment, which is just unprecedented. Yeah. It's, it's raging and everything else is almost at a standstill. I think probably the I mean the in, the industry sort of continues to get better at what it does. So bet um, more focused in what it does, mm. more accumulated experience in the doing, more conviction around the doing, uh, and obviously the, the the momentum is sort of a self perpetuating phenomenon. And mm. you know what one of the interesting challenges around it, I think, for the funds is it's quite difficult to slow down. So if you if you talk to funds and say, you know, you're going really fast, why don't you slow down? They find they have a really hard job answering that. So, this a simplistic um, notion would be: okay, you know, if, if you're going really fast and you're going faster than the run rate, just push the bar up, push the bar up on things that you say yes to, and therefore you mm. will sort of solve for that problem. But, um, but actually, it, it feels more like as long as it clears the bar, we're going to keep going because mm. we've got this momentum um, issue, or maybe it's FOMO, right? We don't want to. If we don't do this, somebody else will, and and we don't want to slow. It's a market share thing as well, presumably. It's like this is the you know, particularly with greater specialisation. It's like you you want to know what's going on, and if you become too selective, is there a fear that we become we get out of the loop and out of practice? Yeah, I think well, there's definitely a sort of it's difficult to manage it. It's really difficult to manage it internally, and 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 therefore I think there's sort of a natural tendency just to keep going because it is yeah. it's difficult to slow the machine down and yeah. speed it up. Um, but it would be a good thing, in your view, if if you, there could be a bit more discipline, a bit, a bit of a higher ambition. Well, I, I think it's not so much that. I think it's more, um, you know, that the the system 
there's a sort of set of rules, if you like, for the way the system is meant to operate around the way investment pacing is meant to take place. Because it, I mean, what it does is it just creates merry hell with the LPs because they're there. Their ability to fund things is is framed around a set of expectations around how fast things get invested and when the money comes back. Um, and if you go really fast, then you just cause big ripples for them because they can't they can't make it work internally. So they mm. you know they've got too much exposure, they've got too much unfunded there, and therefore it all starts to you know become quite challenging. And that and that's probably what's happened now. So you know it would be great if 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 we didn't have that, but we do and. Um, we're going to have to riddle through it. And so there's this massive kind of glut of funds coming to market now, which it, it just seems so inefficient. And I know that's kind of part of private equity's secret, that it's a bit inefficient and therefore that creates discipline. But I mean, it's it, it does seem unfortunate. There are so many great funds trying to raise money all, all at once. What's going to happen? Well, there's going to be a shakeout. So, you know, I think, I think you already see some of that where, you know, if you if you look at the sort of card, particularly for the, the European card, there's some that are going to punt. So they're going to say the easiest way to win is not to play the game. So we, they will they will figure ways to punt into a different year, uh, next year. Um, there'll be clear winners who are, for whatever reason, ha- have just got a superior value prop, uh, the right set of investors, and they'll go through it. And some of them already have. And then there's the somewhere in the middle group. And and the question with them, you know, and if you look at history's precedent, they'll all get there. It's just a question of when and what they'll have to give to get there. Hmm. And I think that's kind of what you'll see. So, the, you, you know, things are going to take longer because I think we'd also been sort of slightly um, a victim of the, the speed of fundraisings which were taking place in maybe 2020, um, 2021, uh, certainly 20, so fast. I think we're kind of ending, come back to more like what normal looked like in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take a while. Um, but again, you know, the sort of the aggregate demand profile for the industry is still really good. So, you know, the, these these funds, the bigger ones, which are the sort of the top 15, I mean, they're big for a reason. They're successful. They've mm-hmm. got long franchises, long-term franchises. They've got performance records that, that meet investor expectations. So I think they get there. It's just going to be a while. Yeah. And, it, and it might, and there might be some, you know, will not be a linear path because you're already seeing, you know, some investors, some big investors going, you know what, we we just can't do this for everybody. So we're going to trim back our roster. Mm. That's okay because there's, you know, there's other ways you can, you can build new LP relationships if you lose people, but losing people is never great. So that's a bit uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and that's all happening. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a good discipline. It will give you more, more spread of vintage as well, you know, just in case this one isn't the best. Yeah, well, right. I mean, that is for sure. I mean, you know, having everything in, uh, so concentrated has historically been risky because mm-hmm. of the, the, you know, you just, you can catch a bad, a bad moment in time and, and you struggle to dig yourself out from under it. So my perception of you, I mean, you're seriously in the information flow. I mean, Hamilton Lane had a great information flow, but now you're also getting from your various hats, kind of real micro information, uh, you know, as as well. I mean, what's, is that, does that help you to have that both micro and macro view of things? Oh, well, I mean, say I've learned more in the last year than I did in the last 10. Wow. Really? For sure. Oh, for sure. Um, and so, yes, I mean, it, it is fascinating to see what what seems to be going on. And it's a whole different level of of, of connectivity. Um, and that that is fascinating. And it's just a really, you know, position of real privilege to be able to, 
to be in it. And um, yes, it's really interesting stuff. And I, and I suppose that, you know, it, it does make me think the next 10 years are going to be really interesting because it's going to change, mm. right? The, the, the nature of, you know, kind of what got us here won't get us there for sure. But the, the overarching dynamic around the, the, the industry is really good, but, but it's going to change. And, and it'll be interesting to see how the actors evolve in that changing environment. So it's highly competitive because from an outsider's perspective, things can move quite slowly in private equity. And yet I saw this morning, uh, Dow Jones HEC came out with a mid-market buyout performance league table of the last five years or something. And of the top 20 firms, I didn't really recognize more than about three or four. I'm like, well, that shows you things don't seem to move, but actually, you know, it's highly competitive out there. There's a whole new roster of top-performing yeah. firms. Yeah, and I think the other thing around it is, you know, you sort of do the math and say we're nine, we're nine trillion dollars, um, more or less, for the sake of argument, which means we're, you know, the industry is still smaller than BlackRock, uh, so you know, mm -hmm. fine. Public bond and equities a couple of hundred trillion. Um, allocation to private markets are really pretty low. So when you, and the numbers have been pretty good. So, mm. the, and, and the kind of, again, if you look at the sort of customer work, the customers are, the sort of net promoter score for private markets is really good. Mm. So customers are happy. They're relatively underexposed to something which is exceeding their needs. Well, that's only going to go one direction. Yeah. So, you know, the question then becomes, okay, let, let's say we're right. And let's say, you know, using other people's data, Morgan Stanley, Bain, HL, is we're going to double or triple from here in a 10 year view just stop and think about what that means for a sec. So if you're if you're a fund and you're you're managing say you've got 20 billion dollars AUM in your fund platform, it's going to be 60. Okay. You're not going to have three times the numbers of companies because that's going to be a complexity bomb. Hmm. So assume that you're you the number of businesses that you own doesn't actually go up materially, it goes up a bit. Well just do, obviously the sort of quotient they're going to be three times bigger. Okay. How's that going to work? How are, you, how are you going to operate with businesses which are significantly larger in scale at the starting point? And then how are you going to generate value from businesses that are much larger to start with? What's the, what's the plan, right? And does, does what you did do work at three times the scale? It might, mm. but you better be sure. All of that, I think, is going to be really interesting because, the, the, again, you know, the, the, other, the other question around it is the... The, the stats, the sort of math that people use for, for private equity, particularly IRR calcs, don't account for weight of capital. So, you know, your IRR, you, know, you can have the same IRR deploying 100 million as 10 billion. But as the industry grows, what's going to become imperative is the scale, mm. right? It's not, it's not going to be the return on the marginal pounds. It's going to be the return of pounds mm. because of the scale effect. So how's that going to play through? Um and how is that going to drive industry dynamics? And, it, and it's an issue, I think, particularly for Europe because we've we've generally struggled to scale things. So if you look if you look at where the really big funds of Europe have been created, I mean, they've many, if not well, most have been born from banks. So you know, Bridgepoint, NatWest, CVC, Citibank, BC, Bearings Bank, PAI is is Paribas, and they were born with a franchise and a model that allowed them to operate all across the region, and that's allowed them to scale. But if you look, you know, the smaller funds that are typically country-based when they begin, they're based in Paris, based in Frankfurt, based in Berlin, whatever, they've really struggled to scale. So you've ended up in Europe with a real two-speed market where there's, there's a sort of a group disappearing off to the left 
many going asset manager and, and really growing materially because they, they've been able to because their definition has allowed it. And a whole bunch in the countries who are, who are having a hard job because it's really difficult to get out where you were born. Mm. And so, that, I mean, that, and that's an interesting challenge for us uh, here is, is how we solve that in this, in this overarching, you know, if things are doubling or tripling from here. Um, well, that, you know, there's some, some people will definitely benefit from that and others it will be a problem. How does the mid-market fit into all this? Because when we talk about private equity as a whole, we're talking in round numbers and we're generally thinking about the, the mega buyouts getting ever larger. And I think that's reflected in the numbers as well, that the huge growth in the industry is actually from an increasing size yep. of very large deals. And yet there's this strange phenomenon that in the middle, which I kind of always view as the, the heart of the industry, things seem to always just plod along at the same rate. People seem happy. They do a good job. They're not necessarily that greedy and want to build a massive franchise. Yeah. Can the two coexist? Yeah. Well, I mean, Bain, Bain's got a great term for it. They say winner takes most. So, you know, with, with the um, the big the big funds are, you know, the, in terms of the way that the dynamics are moving and the needs of the customer, because this is the other, the other thing which I think, you know, is like super front of mind is who are my customers and what are their needs? And how am I meeting them? And how are they changing? And you know, I think the big platforms are quite—they're quite good at figuring that out, getting better all the time, at figuring out. Mid market is a bit like—I mean, my, you know, my sense—it's a bit like, uh, you know, they—they they produce a good product, um, and obviously, evidently, you know, so they wouldn't—they wouldn't be successful. But you know, I don't know how much people think about what their customers' needs really are and how they're evolving and changing. And how they're going to meet those needs going forward, um, don't know the answer to that. But it, mm. I mean, and I do, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but it's an interesting challenge around, you know, it, how, how do you define how do you find growth so that because everything has to grow. Like Bain mm. would say, and I would agree, if you don't grow, you're sort of going to atrophy. You're going to lose yeah. your competitive position will erode. Your talent will sort of disappear. Mm. You will kind of drivel up. So you need some element of growth to sort of healthy for the system. Mm. So how do you how do you frame that? What's your version of it? And, mm. and I think I mean this is one of the things that um, you know without giving too many secrets away from the stuff that we do with Bain. But whenever we look at these things, these individual GPs, and we see loads, the f the first question we ask is what is your ambition? And then are you aligned, right? And your ambition can be anything, but mm. do you really know what your ambition is? Mm. And does everybody in that decision-making forum have the same version of it? Because if you don't have that, you're going to really struggle, mm. right? If you can't articulate what you're trying to achieve and then you're not all joined up because it's effectively, if you're not all joined up, it's like the weakest gazelle or the wounded gazelle. Yeah. You move at the speed of the lowest common denominator. Um, and that means that you just you don't take decisions fast enough. You don't you don't move with enough conviction, and you just get mm. beaten. Um, and so, I mean that that is a really I think a really powerful tool, and and you can see why it works because again, ambition you can have whatever ambition you want, but but you need to be able to frame it, articulate it, and mm. then people need to know what it is, and then you can build it. You can build what you want, and then you can kind of go from there. Yeah, in some senses, it's easier for the for the big guys because they're always they're in an arms race to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, although I think with them, even there, right? So the, um, there's sort of a there's a bit of a bifurcation. I think there's there's those that are you know going multi-platform asset manager, and 
a number are public and more will follow. And they are they are really saying, you know, big ambitions. And we've certainly heard this over the last while. You know, people with 150 billion AUM saying, how do we get to 504 years? Mm. Right? Yeah, already at scale, but doesn't matter. Mm. Want to double or triple from there? And then it's a question of, you know, what's our? It's a great for a consultant because it's sort of this is what consultants do is. You know, what are our current products? Who are our current customers? What's our current wallet, share wallet? And um, what can we do? What's max, max AUM, current customer, current product? What's max AUM, current customer, adjacent product? What's max AUM, new customer, current product or core product? What's max AUM, new customer, new product? Um, and that gets you to the math. Mm. And then it's like, okay, how do we build that? All right, what 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 do we need that we don't have? And you see, obviously, there's evidence of plenty of M and A now around people building out their platforms. And then what what's the organization that we need to serve it? And this is like the other interesting thing around the commercial organization. So you know, how do you build your go to market functions so that you can actually deliver what you want from an AUM perspective? And what you see with that is a sort of utter arms race in IR because no one's got the right setup really. Yeah. So, and there's, you know, you have to build your IR setup to be able to get enough airtime with your customers. Because, I mean, this is the LP's challenge of right now is that, you know, I talked to a guy in the Middle East and he basically said, um, just the other week, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I asked him, are you back in the office? And he said, well, yes and no. So what do you mean by that? I'm in the office, but I haven't actually been at my desk for two weeks. I've been in meeting rooms because all these people are rocking through the region and I'm kind of nine to five every day of the week in a meeting room, meeting them. So I've got no time to really think. I'm just in perpetual yeah. meetings because all these guys are out there trying to raise across their platforms all their different strategies, and it's a it's mm. a bit of a nightmare. So anyway, you have the pla platforms are doing that. In other words, that's not systematized or scalable. This guy's overrun. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, and this is where I mean, and this is where like if you look at you know the LP behavior, the sort of um. LP is looking to add new managers to their platforms pretty limited because mm. they're so crushed with all the re-up activity from existing existing relationships that they've got, either existing funds or or existing relationships with a something slightly different fund, but there's mm. sort of a relationship angle. It's really challenging. Um, so that and those are the big, the big platforms. And then you've also got those, the, the other interesting question of those who are like, that's not us. So, you know, we're not going, we're not going to become a platform. We're not going to uh, do anything particularly clever with a corporate structure, like an estate dealer or an IPO, but we do want to scale. So what they're trying to figure out is how, you know, where do we fit in this world? So if you can imagine, you know, there's plenty of examples you can think of, of, you know, really successful GPs, but they're sort of more monoline and, mm. and, you know, they haven't done anything particularly with their management structures, their management company structures, and they're going, okay. We see all these, all this scaling up going on, and we want to you know, maintain a relative share at least, and want, therefore grow. What do, what do we do to to do that? What's our playbook for maintaining relevance? Yeah. And then you get the rest who are like you know, the, and they are they are trying to figure through. You know, we we see the first two archetypes: the sort of platform scaling up archetype the the sort of industry champion archetype and then you know we're not that right so we're, we're perfectly good but you know we're getting outgunned what do we do mm. 
What do we do? And it's, you know, it, and is there room for people like that? Yeah, well, I mean... is a model that could work still? Well, I think, you know, there's enough growth mm. that, that, yeah, and, and, and there has been, but I think it's just, it, it's it's a really interesting time because it's I think we're inflecting up on scaling um, and therefore, you know, the, 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 there's sort of a, almost a, there's going to be a bit of a reshuffling of the deck uh, or a reordering of the squash ladder, if you like, and and mm-hmm. folk are trying to figure through, you know, where am I and where, again, what's my ambition? Where do I want to be on it? Um, and how do I take the steps to go where yeah. I want to get to? So I guess there are two pieces to this in terms of scale. scale. One is how do I get the money and who do I get it from? And then it's like, what do I do when I've got it? We were talking before we pressed record about the future of the future customer. Can you say a little bit on the record as to, you know, what that is and what the what the prize is down the road? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things which I suppose are without giving state secrets away that I can discuss. So the I mean, I think that there's a sense of the center of gravity for the funding world's moving east geographically mm. right so you know the, the the role the relative role of things like the u.s state pension system is is almost for sure going to decline because these schemes are maturing and their and their ability to take up you know long-term locked up liquidity risk is going to go down not up um and also the number of new defined benefit schemes in the u.s has has basically gone to ground to a stop so you've got a sort of a center gravity shift eastwards um Best we can tell, like the relative share of sovereign entities is going up because they are aggressively looking to increase exposure and there's still new ones getting created um, all the time. In fact, most of them in the Middle East and Asia. So, um, you know, there's a sort of center of gravity shift to the east. The nature of the customer is going to adjust. Because again, And if you just said, okay, you know, you're a big fund, you've got a state pension fund client on one side and a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East on the other. Are their needs the same? No, they're not. So there's a sort of a, as that center of gravity shifts, there'll be a sort of a, mm, are we really doing, are we giving them what they want? And, or are we not? Question. And then the other thing, which is sort of, you know, absolutely front page of the Daily Mail is the the democratization piece. So the retail retailification, that's a word. Um, and that's, that's big. Because the, the just the pool, the capital pool, the asset pool there is enormous. I mean, I think HL printed this year it's eighty trillion, so it's ten times the size of the current industry definition. Is is of addressable market for that product suite? Okay, I mean, you know, if you have ten percent of that flips to private, that's doubling the size of the industry in one go. Mm. But there, you know, the needs of the customer definitely differ, um, and they differ across because the retail is not like one bucket. There's lots of different archetypes within it and they need different things with different definitions. So that's a big, that's a big deal. That's a yeah. big deal. How, how that gets dealt with. And you see, you know, there's, there's various um, groups running at how to solve that conundrum um, running fast. I mean, HL did something really smart last week and they tokenized one of their products. So by tokenizing it, they get the access point down to $10,000. That's right. pretty smart. So mm-hmm. you know, and you know, there's other plenty of others are trying to do the same thing. So there's a real, you know, a huge resource and a huge amount of time and effort getting invested in trying to solve that problem, um, and that and that's what will be different going forward. So if you think, you know, for for you and I with our sort of SIP, we've got no exposure to this mm-hmm. broadly. 
that won't be the case in ten years' time. It will be. It will be definitely won't be zero. It'll be. It'll be something, and that's all upside. What about the dear old investment trust? I've always been a big fan of them. Obviously, HG is a form of that. Yep. Well, it is exactly that. So HG um, uh, has, has was was founded. So the, the first actually investment trusts where I grew up actually in Edinburgh investment trust created there. Originally, the first one set up to fund the building of the American railroads, eighteen eighty. Um, and the big, the biggest one out there, Scottish Mortgage, is a is a newbie. It's nineteen ten, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, twelve or fifteen billion pound market cap because the, it's just like if you take one hundred and twenty years and cagger up the returns as ten percent a year, you get enormous numbers popping out at mm-hmm. the end. So e- even with HG, so you know, we we did, we do about depending on the time frame, fifteen to seventy percent net asset growth cagger over ten to twenty years. So, you know, they're, they're great um, and they're not great. So there's, there's things that are brilliant and things that are challenging. So the, the great thing is it's a sort of a super stable, closed-ended structure, um, lots of longevity, um, independent board and you know, good governance. And actually you can buy them for four quid in mm. the case of ours. Um, so super accessible, really, really easy. They're not easy to scale other than organically. So that you scale by you, everything rolls around inside the structure, so they they can compound up at reasonable rates of return, but they they take a while. They mm-hmm. grow slowly. It's like you know, garage slowly, basically. Um, and that's really that's really interesting, but it's quite a specialist subject. Yeah. What what the mar- what the players in the market have done have gone for something else. They've gone for the open ended structure, open ended private market exposure vehicle, and what's great about them if you're an asset manager is they scale really fast so you know if you look in the in q2's report last year blackstone printed their two big exposure vehicles one is credit and one is real estate and bcred four billion dollars a month oh. right so mm. 50 a year that's mm. double the blackstone flagship every year yeah so you can see why people want to do those and so you know there's a lot of time and effort and people have figured out the tech to be able to do the semi-liquid exposure vehicles and they are super popular. And then in the land of investment companies, which is the, where HG sits along with, you know, Pantheon and Harbourvest, there's a, there's a bunch. There's not that many that are at scale, I would say. Mm. So, so scale is sort of, you know, north of a billion market cap. There's probably 10 that are north of a billion market cap. Um, and, you know, they've done really well, but if you're, if you're, it's great for the individual, you know, if you can figure out what they are and that you're interested, then it's easy to get in and out of them. But for the likes of a big institutional asset manager, it's a challenge because there's, you know, they're not liquid enough to cope with big liquidity or big transaction volumes. Yeah. So if you, you know, if you try and shift, you know, if an institution, and this is again, in, and in the wealth space, because the wealth space has been consolidated mainly by private equity, um, as the, the wealth space operates on a sort of a model portfolio in many cases. So, when um, Kilter or Tilney decides to put something into the model portfolio, it's actually quite a big number. Mm. And liquidity of these investment trusts is generally not that helpful for that really big number. Yeah. So therein lies the rub. So they're, they're you know, been around for a long time, done, done well, um, probably stay around for a long time because of their structure. But in terms of, if you think about the, the that wealth 
model where you've got a very high ultra net worth, high net worth at one end, which are kind of almost family offices, and then the sort of pure retail customer at the other. Um, the, the pure retail customer at the moment struggles to get exposure to the, the open-ended structures because the minimums are still high, but they can definitely get down the investment company route. Uh, the other, actually, the other caveat to that is investment companies, it's pretty difficult to do anything with them outside the UK from a regulatory perspective. Right. Um, but if you're in the UK, then you can definitely do that and you know, click on Harvey's Lansdowne and you've got all of your fingertips. The ultras are already served because they're they're in the exposure vehicles that are like feeding into the different funds. Um, and then the two in the middle are where the open-ended structures are looking. Mm. And it's just a pyramid of people, right? So there's a relative very few super ultra and there's tens and tens of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who are at the bottom of the pyramid who are mm. going to go through the the more sort of publicly listed type structure. And then there's the two bits in the pyramid in the middle and it's, you know, how do you how do you address those bits? Yeah, and the mass affluent and the richish guys. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's, it's what, do you, what do you design yeah. to serve those? And that's, a, yeah. but the volumes are enormous. So it's a big prize. No one's really cracked that yet, no? No, they have no, cracked no. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's half a dozen vehicles yeah. out there and they're mostly sold through um, wealth management intermediaries. Yeah. So, it, you know, the, the the big wealth managers, like the biggest wealth managers, UBS. So obviously that's one. And, but they, they have access to this um, yeah. and, and they, they would, you know, they would manage it at their end and subject to the regulatory hurdles of, of mm. the right, you have to have the right, accreditation as a client or you have to be put into the right bucket for a client accreditation to be able to do it but these things are out there yeah i mean anyway. i have had on the show a chap from a stepstone vehicle uh called conversus and that that structure sounded like completely pucker when i say no one's cracked it i was thinking more along the lines of have they genuinely demonstrated that it has scale uh, well i mean the poster child for this is partners group right right so and and you know they're to their credit they got their well ahead um, so the, the people that are ahead of the game on this in Europe it's them and in the US it's you know the US, the big US GPs have got this tech sorted out and figured out how to sell it all but I mean if you in your partners group you know because it's part public company and they're very transparent you can just google around it and you see what they've done it's a big thing right so it's it's a it's, it's a proven concept I think the, the question is just more when you build them when you build these things the the, the trick is because they're open-ended, you know, that is great if you're raising money, but it also means you could get called, right? You can get redemptions. Yeah. So when you build them, you, you typically do it, or the people that have done it to scale so far have built these, these products with inherent liquidity or inherent yield. So they've, they've, that's why like the two big Blackstone ones are real estate and credit. They're mm. yielding. Mm. Um, and then liquidity, there's not liquid like a BP share. It doesn't trade every day. It's normally a monthly liquidity with some sort of limit, cap limit, quarterly and annual. So it's got some kind of liquidity. And the, the the premise is that the underlying liquidity at the investment level generates cash to the vehicle um, to a degree. And then there's also, there's normally kind of a, a credit line that sits below the vehicle to allow you to sort of survive speed bumps. And all of that should work. Yeah. And that and that's what that's how they're set up. But the, the trick on it is um, it doesn't really work for private equity because private equity has no yield. Mm. So, and that that one, there's, a, there's another way to solve that, which is the, the product provider has to effectively 
make a market in their own vehicle. So they have to use their own balance sheet to, to provide the liquidity mechanism to allow whatever form of liquidity is yeah. mandated. Um, and that, I mean, that's, that's a big deal because that's, you know, that's kind of the customers or the, certainly the channel customers and the wealth channel really would like to have this product. Mm. And so far there's not that much of it out there. Right. That's about to get cracked. So that's coming. And then we'll see what happens. We'll see how, how much of it. So that vanilla private equity piece, that's the, that's the yeah, main you'll bit be able to, to You'll be yeah. able to buy shortly, or, you know, the, it, or it will be available to buy shortly, a private equity open-ended exposure vehicle. It will be, will be there. Yep. So just to finish off on this accumulation of capital piece, um, and I hate to jump from the innovative to the more prosaic, but um, what are your thoughts on con- continuity funds, GP-led, you know, people that want to, uh, push the structure. Yeah, you know, keep keep owning stuff. Is that is it is it popular? Does it make sense? Is it a solution? Yeah. Well, I mean, at the heart of it, if you think you go back to where it all comes from, it's the the kind of nature of deal making has evolved a bit to the extent that that you know when and if I look if I look at um, some of the things that we have in our portfolio at HG, you know, we we have reasonable conviction certainly on some of them that they will continue to compound up at a very attractive rate of return for way longer than a typical holding period mm. um because of what they are i mean in, in our, our poster child is visma which i think we, the original deal was done in 2004 mm. still in the portfolio and it's still compounding up at pretty much the same rate it did in the first the first underwrite of the first deal so you know if you have if you have GPs buying buying assets where there's a sort of a you know there is a really long runway of value creation, then you can see why you know they're going to look they're going to look at the sort of the end of the first phase and go, if we sell this, all we're going to do is make somebody else a fortune, because all they'll do is they'll 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 get the same underwriting that we got, except they'll have it on a much bigger entry check and they'll generate a much bigger capital gain. So let's not do that. So that makes sense. Um, in terms of you know how do we capitalize on that? If you effectively you're sort of selling, you're selling your you're providing someone else's um, next deal, and you know it could be you. So you can see why um, you can see why there's a sort of a, yeah, there's logic there, logic right? to yeah. it, right? Let's not do that. That's a bit silly. Um, and then your options are you know sort of obviously go fund to fund, um, which you can do. So you can go fund to fund. You get someone to set the price, and again. Mm-hmm. You talk about the needs of the customer with the sort of rise of the sovereigns. There's a large and growing bunch of them that that's exactly what they want, right? They they want to be able to price, they will price the asset. They'll take a massive chunk of it down in a direct exposure into their own balance sheet, and then the GP can roll value into the new structure into a new fund. So that works as a well proven route, and that will continue. And then the continuation fund is more of a sort of um, it's kind of an adjunct of that, I'd say, where you know that. For whatever reason, it's it doesn't you know it doesn't solve for other ways. So and and also you've got obviously lots of secondary capital ever the more so willing to fund these things. So you know, and I think you'll see you'll see more of that. I think that the the challenge for the GPs is going to be like the original primary GP is going to be how do I build my portfolio of exit optionality? So you know, because continuation funds are obviously one route. They are, um, they're very popular. They've been very popular. They've got pros and cons. Fund to fund transfers 
have also got pros and cons. So it's a question of, you know, what would you do? What is your sort of optimized version of, you know, if we've got 20 deals in the portfolio, there's there's five that are sort of own for a long time deals. Um, what would we do with them? Do we go fund to fund? Do we try a continuation fund? Um, how are we going to think about the the way our customers are going to react to these different options? How will it meet their needs? So that will all come into it. But I think, you know, at, at, t- at a baseline, you're, you're going to see more, significantly more. You can see like, like the, there's lots of uh, interests aligning around doing more of these things. I think you'll see it. But you're not going to come down on any particular model? Um, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, the, 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 you know, at the end of the day, the fund manager has to be acting in the best interest of the fund. So right. as long as you can demonstrate that you're acting in the best interest of the fund, that it's yeah. a fair and transparent process, that there's a sort of a no cost rule option for investors to continue doing what they're doing. Um, you know, I think you're going to be okay, but yeah, it's still a bit, you know, the sands are still shifting on it really. So to try and distill a few, uh, observations from what you've said so far, um, People tend to focus a lot on on GP skills, um, which we can come on to um, as the real kind of value add engine of the industry. But given everything that you've outlined and the huge uh, pressure and momentum and growth and growth and complexity of the industry, um, would it be fair to say um, that, that the there's going to be a real differentiator in terms of the LP base and the skills and perhaps some kind of polarization in terms of the actual returns that different investors into private equity, whether they are proper LPs or, you know, that's not done money, but you know, the, yeah. the new entrants is, is there a, is navigating this going to become increasingly alpha? Yeah. I think, I think, well, f- firstly, this industry, like all others has got an experience curve. So, you know, the level of knowledge and understanding continues to compound up all the time. And it, I mean, it does in every industry, so this won't be any different. So, you know, that, that is a continual factor in the way that, the way that people understand problems and make decisions, it, it continues to evolve and will continue to evolve. Um, you know, just things like what, you know, what ELPA have done, you know, even like what the CFA continues to do. So the, the sort of baseline level of skills and, um, and well, internally inside organizations and also as people come in and bring skills and get trained up, you know, continues to get more and more and more and more sophisticated. So I think, I think what is interesting is um, how, will, how will LPs take decisions going forward? So their baseline levels of knowledge and understanding will continue to develop. The complexity will continue to develop. Data will continue to develop, um, but data in itself isn't helpful. What's helpful is insight, right? And this is like one of the things you know, beaten into me 25 years ago at Bain. What I want to know is how does this help me make a better decision? Are we looking at data which actually, when the analysis is done, the insight is meaningful to the extent I do something, make a better outcome? Because investing is all about better decisions. Mm. That's that's the question I think is going to be the challenge is how how will people look at this exploding amount of information and use it to make better decisions? Um, and there's a few there's a, there's a few different pieces to that. I mean, there's at one level the sort of the the big thing, the sort of elephant in the room, is how much of this stuff should we have? How much of this private market stuff should we have? Because for most 
lead everybody. It's part of their portfolio, but nobody knows how much. Nobody knows how much is the right number, right? So it could be 2% of your assets. It could be 22% of your assets and you've just got no idea, right? You can't Pareto optimize for it because the, the Markovitz model, which is what drives public market portfolio allocation doesn't work in private because the risk metrics don't work. So nobody really knows. So the question number one is, and this is like a question for today, frankly, is how much exposure should we really have? Because at the moment, you know, ma many institutions are quite overexposed because the, the NAV run up has been really strong and the, so the public market effect is kind of here or there, but the NAV run up has been really strong. So private equity has actually outperformed to the extent that many have got too much exposure or notionally too much exposure, but what should exposure really be? Mm. Right question. And then when it comes to the, you know, the, at the micro level for, you know, you're looking at, you know, you, you want to dig the drains up on a, on a GP, you know, what will you really look at that will help you make a better decision? And I think that will definitely evolve because I mean, just the sort of, you know, dogma of IRR, I mean, it is, we, we use it all the time and it's just not very good. Yeah. So, you know, and then this is where all of our uh, gosh lagging is at the ASHSA, people are very active and there's, you know, there's more to come on that. But, and I think as data gets more, um, gets more granular. So like even Bain, I've got a thing called Deal Edge, which is like deal level data and analytics. It, it's on the, on the journey. Um, but that, that will be, you know, you'll be able to really look at how good GPs are at, at picking deals relative to others. So you basically, you know, I want to look at healthcare deals in Europe in 2018. Okay. How many deals were done? Who did them? What are the outcomes? Um, how are people marking their assets? Because that's again, you know, what, what, how do you determine performance? Is it, is it exogenously because of the, the way valuations are set or is it fundamentally in the way that businesses meet or achieve their EBITDA goals? Mm. And then how does it wrap up into a fund? And then how is that fund managed? And how do I feel about that relative to my original expectations? That's, there's masses to go on all of that. that. There'll be a sea change there, I'm sure. Yeah, so that's that latter part is all skill. And that's... That, yeah, it's knowledge, experience. Not, yeah. And then it's also, it's framing, framing what you look at through the lens of what helps you make a better decision. Yeah. Because you could, you know, and again, consultants are, this is what, consultants do because consultants would, would talk about boiling the ocean right oh, yeah. so you know you've got such an enormous amount of data you can go crazy mm. right and it's just it's a massive time sink and it's not insightful mm. so you know what you want to frame is what analysis can we do that will be insightful and will help us make better decisions yeah that's what's coming i heard a lecture from a behavioral psychologist um gerd Gigerinza. And uh, he mentioned that Markowitz, to develop modern portfolio theory, when it came to his own a journalist, asked him, how do you invest your own money, his own pension? He said, oh, I just divide it all equally across 10 funds. You know, and, he, and he didn't use his own theory for that. And the whole precept is the more complex your domain, actually, the better off you are keeping it simple as far as you can. Yep. So, um, and I guess also on that point, in terms of this big question of what's the right proportion of private assets in your... I mean, it, it's a kind of a unanswerable question. There's no right answer to it. So I wonder if the question is actually what, what is the mechanism and the model that we use to come up with a figure that we can defend? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's definitely, 
you know, stakeholder management is super important. So, you know, how do we go to our governance and and identify what the right target is? I mean, I, you know, I remember uh, shall remain nameless, but very large sovereign wealth fund uh, who didn't have any of this stuff, um, and asked the question, you know, what are you shooting for? And they went ten percent. Okay, why ten? big round number yeah right <laughs> <laughs> you know, like but hang on 10 percent of a lot is a lot yeah, yeah yeah we know but it just you know that that feels like where we can go and actually you see that even with the the really big entities and this is actually you know go back to that point around the growth the growth of the asset class that you know i think the way it seems to work when these things get going is like big round number and the, and the governance comes back and says let's do half let's yeah. do half of the big round number <laughs> until we're kind of yeah. Out, out of the training zone it's all a rule of thumb yeah, yeah. and then okay but what one if let, let's pick a number and let's kind of half it or whatever yeah. be conservative yeah. uh, build lots of structure and processing in what we do try and try and you know de-risk the outcome as much as possible and then kind of get going and then if it works okay the the training wheels come off mm. and th- and this is where i think it was certainly some of those these entities that are that are in where the, we think the flows are going to come from they've got so much that you know, if they if they've under-egged it a bit to try and get themselves into a good position to start with, then there's a lot to go for. Mm. They could easily you know double or triple their allocations, and it still wouldn't look crazy. Um, and if you think you know U.S. endowments and even U.S. pension funds, I mean, some of the big U.S. pension schemes are north of twenty percent. You know, some of the top ten mm. in the U.S. north of twenty percent. I mean, and you know, look at EMEA, no one's at twenty. I mean, no one. I don't think. I can't think of anyone who's more than five. Yeah. So you know. Lots, lots to go for. So there's two more things I want to cover with you. I don't want to keep you here all day. Um, but last time we spent a lot of time talking about GP skill sets. Oh, yeah. And we touched on that already. I mean, and I was very intrigued when you said, if you're going to get ever larger businesses, do you have the skill set to manage them and add value? And I don't know if you have an answer for that. But there's another element of that so we spent a lot long time talking about specialization and obviously that's the way that's the value creation playbook that's the way it's gone but i mean it's kept going in that direction to the extent that you know it's basically technology isn't it there's just a tech component to almost everything now yep and uh, i won't ask you specifics but i mean i've been an investor in hg capital trust for a long time i think i think it's wonderful and i've come to almost view it as it's like you know i can take it to the bank and cash it i it's just it's always grown um but of course we live in an uncertain world, and I don't really know at all how HG Capital makes money. It has something. It has a it, it has a playbook, and it, it and it works, and it and it repeats it, and it rolls it out, and it and it does it, and, it, and that's great. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'm coming to a question here. Yeah. You, you know, what's the secret sauce? Well, yeah, it's. I'd love to know that, but you're not going to tell me that. But I guess the question is more generic, um, which is, you know, to, to what degree. Can this stuff just be systematized once you found the secret? And to what degree could could the whole thing be disrupted tomorrow? Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't know know any state secrets at HG, so I can't. <laughs> I'm not at any risk of telling you. But I think some of the things that's, that they, that 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 crowd do um, is worth noting. So, I mean, obviously, they they are they are very narrowly focused in what they do. So we don't even do software; we do eight clusters inside of software like tax and accounting, legal and compliance, you know, it's really quite, it's narrowly focused. Um, and and what, what, they've, what they've done and what they do, the, the, way, the, the characteristics of the businesses that they look for. So super high recurring revenue businesses. And Matt Brockman calls it the leaky bathtub, right? So basically, 
every year we know we've got 98% revenue retention because you can't turn off your compliance software, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the, the nature of the businesses have got incredibly high recurring revenues. Um, and then there's, there's a sort of an, an ability to take wallet through adding on adjacent services to the, to the existing customer. So like we just did one this week and it's called the office of the CFO. It's, well, it's in this, this cluster or this group of businesses called the office of the CFO. And it basically says, you know, if you get into the office of the CFO, euphemistically speaking, and you provide the accounting backbone, then if you provide the tax backbone, they're probably going to go for that. That's a sort of an obvious mm. wallet up, upside. Mm. Um, and they're also, the, these businesses, because of their nature, have got pretty good pricing dynamics. So again, if you think about, you know, your Microsoft Excel three six or Office three six five subscription, it's three ninety nine a month. Microsoft tells you it's good at four forty nine. Thank you very much, Microsoft. But there's nothing you can do. So you know, big recurring revenue base, big resilient recurring revenue base, products which are critical, business critical, can't be removed, and the switching costs are enormous. So you can't. You're not going to whip out your tax software because of the risks of messing that up are so massive. You would never do it. Um, pricing power because of the nature of the value proposition. And then fundamentally also fragmented businesses. So you know that you basically want to pick a vertical where you 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 want ideally you want sort of 10 scale assets at the top and a big tail of fragmented smaller players down the bottom, and you're just gonna gobble them all up. Mm-hmm. And then so the the question, and then that's just massively accretive because you acquire customers at a much lower level of EBITDA than you've effectively got in your core business. You build scale, you build market exposure, you build product exposure. And the key thing around it is, you know, you just need to be able to see the path to say, well, you know, we've got, you know, we start, we start from here. This is our attachment point. And you want to, you don't want to attach yourself too far down the stack. And then you want to be able to scale through M&A. So you, you've got that that other lever. So you've got the sort of, what do we do organically lever, which is take this to its full potential through, um, driving customer acquisition, driving wallet with existing customers, optimizing pricing, optimizing digital, the data analytics, we do a lot of that. And then what could you buy to create further scale? And if you look at, I mean, Visma has done something like, okay, it's 15 years, but it's done something like 250 acquisitions. Right. And you just- It's got to be a record. Well, you know, I guess it's a bit like you leave the movie playing long enough, you'll get there, right? And mm. it's just been out there for a long time. But you do lots of acquisitions and that builds that mm. builds scale. So that, and that's a really good playbook, mm. right? And then, th- and what would mess it up, right? So what would mess it up is if you're trying to do that in a sector or a, or a sub-strategy and you're not the only one doing it, right? If someone else is like trying to play the game that you're trying to play and they're ahead of you, then that's, you know, this more complicated dynamics because then you've got, you know, we can't get down this, we can't go down this path because, you know, the asset number six or seven, which is the sort of key to it all is owned by Helmer and Friedman. They're not going to sell it to us. So there's a sort of a, you need to be able to see that. And so that's a pretty good model, right? For, um, for how to do it. Um, but I mean, the, on the, on the, on the other side, I mean, I think on the, on the value creation piece, I think that the, the trick on that, this has very much been middle of the fairway for them. Um, it's a well-understood playbook. It's very different in its implementation case by case and more, and player by player. But the, the sort of, you know, you need to have your version of it and then how you implement it is 
down to the individual fund. And, and it's sort of a, a buy rent thing, right? How much do we want to own internally and how much do we want to outsource to other people to help us solve it? Yeah, everyone has their model. And then what capabilities do we want to really lean on? Um, you know, you can pick, people normally have a handful, maybe 10. And capability would be, you know, you need to have a pricing capability. Absolutely. Because it's the biggest single lever of value creation is pricing. That's number one off the rank. Um, you need digital. You need ESG. You need talent. You probably need lean. Or certainly if you're in manufacturing. So there's a sort of a, you know, what's your mix of, of stuff? And then how do you apply it? And how do you and how do you work with the companies to to deliver this stuff? Because you know, some some are more open than others, and that's another challenge. So you've got, you know, you've got the toolkit, or I call it the toy store, right? You've got the toy store. Um, but how how do you get that to engage or to get that to engage with the portfolio company because uh, some you know some companies are more interested in others in doing it um, and then the other thing you do if you're smart is you get your portfolio to learn from itself so you basically say you know we we, we will teach you um we will teach you how to do things or we'll sort of shine the light on stuff and then you're you know we're going to make create a forum that you teach everybody else because you get a massive force multiplier because there's only one team that can do one set of engagements but it, mm. if we if we tell you know we, we do a project for a company and then that company tells all the other companies. Does that really work? Because I know that stuff goes on. You get CEO forums and yeah, so on. But, yeah, but what's the incentive? You know, what's the incentive for me to share my knowledge with? It? And does it really work across different companies? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, again, you know, it depends on how you define your operations. I mean, if you imagine with ESG, it's all one thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. They're all broadly. They've got different end users, but the sort of playbooks are very similar. Mm. And that means again, experience curve. You get a you get a bigger, faster experience curve because you build more experience quicker because everyone's yeah. broadly got the same set of questions. Yeah. So yeah. that really works. So the more the more diverse and disparate you are, the harder it is to make it work. But in and again, also in some some things are more sort of absolutely ubiquitous and others like pricing. If you say we've got some really interesting insight to share about how to optimize pricing, like so, you know, one question is always a good one to ask is do you really know where you make money right because you've got all this all these customers do you know where you actually make all the money and and most businesses when they go through that exercise find there's a tail that they don't make money on and there's actually a relatively you know a set a set of customers are more than 100 percent of profitability and then there's a tail just knowing that normally comes as a bit of an insight and then you've got to say what you do with it so that that kind of stuff's all pretty powerful but yeah, I mean, hmm, disruption. So I mean, the thing, the things that people are talking about. I mean, the sort of what you do with digitalization, data, and tech is obviously everywhere. And then what you do with the way, you, what's your version of ESG, is also ev everywhere. Um, and that that seems to be where a lot of time and attention is getting focused in these two areas. Right? What do we do? What's our version? So to go back to your fantastic summary at the start, you mentioned um, you mentioned inflation and the the general economic climate. I don't normally ask private equity people about macroeconomics because it, it confuses them generally. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, I mean, I, I'm no economist, but I certainly feel like the world is, is very vulnerable. I feel like we've been in perpetual uh, global financial system crisis mode for most of my career and it never gets resolved. And now we've got this terrible specter of inflation and um, a real 
a serious cost of living crisis, certainly in this country, yep. um, but probably much broad, more broadly. Um, these are these are big questions, and normally private equity firms can just focus on the the micro and plod along and buy low and whatever, sell high. But what's what's your view? Let's maybe take inflation because these are leverage. These are, this is a leverage play after all. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an unprecedented time, really, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think on the on that point, how do you deal with rising price levels? There's a there's a couple of things. I think you know that what at one level the challenge is is, is a challenge of scale. So if if the businesses are sm- are small, they've got more market risk, customer risk, product risk, and management risk, right? They've just got fewer ways to solve it. Um, and also, if they're small, they've typically got less market power. Um, and market power means less pricing power. So, you know, I, if there's the in that area, I think I can see trouble, evidently. Um, because all these factors are all multiplying up to, to create the same kind of problem. As the businesses get bigger, they've got all the opposite applies. So they've got less market risk, multiple markets, multiple products, um, multiple bigger management teams, more bandwidth, better market power, more pricing power. So you know, I think, and then what what that kind of means in it is there's a sort of a premium for leadership. So market leadership, however you define it, because your market can be defined very differently, but you you, you definitely want to be in a leadership position. I think if you're like the week number five or worse, it's problematic, I think. And I think, you know, that that's what I would worry about. And I mean, some of the things I do, you know, there's one in particular, which you know, I've mentioned before, where we've got a very big portfolio of very small companies. I mean, that that feels to me like that's going to be trouble just because of the the nature of that dynamic and if if you're but if you're in a sort of big boat basically a big boat in a storm right the bigger the boat the better and i think those in the bigger boat will will manage through this better um but it's still going to be challenging so you mean even if you've got like a big boat and you've got a big business with relative market share you've got pricing power you've got resilient long customer relationships big customers basically you're selling something which is a sort of not, not a nice to have, but an imperative. I mean, all that helps, but you're still going to feel it. You're still going to feel a squeeze. And I think on the, you know, again, the the, the capital structures of it all are sort of the banking and financing of it all. Um, you know, th- that's going to be an interesting call because the who owns the debt now is a bit different, yeah. right? So who owns the debt? It's not really the banks. It's more the loan funds, or certainly significantly more the loan funds, um, and obviously the bond market so you know what if things get into trouble then how will they all react right right because i mean the 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 mechanisms are different certainly between the banks and the loan funds so you know will that will that be helpful will you know loan funds will not want to call the administrator um so maybe that means there's more headroom we don't know we don't really know because we've never been here before but um i mean i do remember one one uh, GP that I know very well, um, who's who's in a in a fund that has been around for a very very long time, uh, and to the extent that they did actually have a, a business in the seventies, um, and he actually said, "What I did was I I got hold of the partner group from the seventies that were still with us, and invited them around for lunch with my partner group, 
and said, okay, you know, what happened? What did you do differently? Because like no one in this office has ever seen this before, but you actually have. And that was some of the stuff that came out of it was, was you know, focus on pricing power, mm. focus on resiliency um, and, and get ahead of it. Like get ahead of the banking problems because, you know, by the time, the, the time you need to solve them, yeah, there's going to be a queue it. out the door. Mm. So, you know, get ahead, mm. um, buy yourself time. To, to what degree does, if we were to return to a, a 20th century style inflationary environment, return environment, to what degree does that dampen the, the, the grand ambitions of the industry as a whole and its growth? Does it cap it? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, um, P's always, well, for, for most, it's also a relativity trade. Mm. So what's your best alternative, basically? Um, and I think you know what 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 you see happening already is like the the public market roll up, which is driven by liquidity, um, it's kind of hit the flat line. So actually, they you would say almost that if private equity can continue to do what it does really well, which is a sort of business transformation stuff, then you know the, the, I don't know if that changes. I don't know if that. Makes people change their decisions around it, and I mean the other thing around it. I mean, maybe at some point it will happen, but certainly in my career, I'd never had a client ever say, "Let's do less." Hmm. Right? I had people say, "Let's stop for a while," yeah, or do more. But I've n I'd never heard anybody say, "Actually, you know what? Balls burst. Let's go back to just doing public marks and markets yeah. and bonds." I can't see that happening either. So I think you know the the pattern. It will not be a straight line. Um, there will be ebbs and flows in mm. it all. But, you know, I think that relative to your best alternative, because I mean, the, the great thing about private I mean, this is the, like the, 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 the thing that I bore my friends with when they asked me, it's the only asset class in the world where the insiders make the liquidity decisions. Right. So if you're, if you're a fund manager, a public market fund manager, you have no idea when to sell. Right. You just can't know or else you're going to go to jail. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what, what you've done in private equity is you've outsourced your ability to make a bad liquidity decision to someone that's going to make a really good one. You don't know when, but you know that whenever they do, it's going to be a good one. Mm. And so there's this really asymmetric outcome of returns where there's a very low mm. left tail because of that structure. So you have a sort of skewed outcome to the upside because they're incentivized to, to pick the moment. That feels like quite a good place to be relative to public market volatility seems like quite a good place to be. So I, I don't yeah. know, I'm, I think it will, as I said, it won't be a straight line, but I'm reasonably confident in the outcome. Yeah. I think that hits the nail on the head. It's, it's, it's that, you know, you, you have to commit, but the reward for that is that someone's making those decisions who knows what's going on. Yeah. And that feels more fundamental than leverage or whatever. I think so. so yeah. Um, Jim, Diamond Insights, as always, just fantastic. Thank you so much for, for sharing them. Can't believe these go out for free. <laughs> no it's a pleasure and you're a lot it's a lot nicer audience than my London Business School class you'd be chucking things at me by this point so you're very welcome it's a pleasure <laughs> great thanks a lot oh I should have asked you about the London Business School <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well, what's that I, I had no idea you're an actual professor and lecturer yeah Professor Strang right yeah well we, yeah. we're all everyone's a professor at LBS but we've all we all play different roles so um, I'm one of the, the my official title is fellow so yep. one of the teaching fellows and uh i've because i've actually got a phd in finance right so for me it's actually not so stupid because <laughs> i actually did this a long yeah. time ago um and i've done it for a while at different levels but the last couple of years i've done more of it so there's the the mba elective is 
uh, I think there's a couple of hundred kids on it. Right. Um, two different streams, and we teach. We it's case based learning, so we have te we teach cases from different subject areas. So we've got like EQT did a case for us, and um, this year Baldston did a case for us, and a whole bunch of different people come and do it. And it's a sort of a theory practice thing where we 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 talk about the things that you would expect to cover in the syllabus. So, you know, VC term sheets and yeah, all yeah. of that and um, buyout models and um, creating new funds and all of this sort of stuff. But then we get, we kind of try and make it real with, um, with yeah. the real content. Well, that actually and, happens. Yeah. And people have been super, yeah. super generous with their time. So, you know, the, we've had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people touring through who are just happy to come and sit and, and spend some time. So it's great. Brilliant. Do you actually have the mark stuff or is it just pitching up to, uh, I do as as of this year I do. All right. As of this year I do. So I've just taken that on. So um and last year we had a different because I teach it in a there's a little group of us that teach it, the three of us. Um myself, Florin, who's the head of the department, and a guy called Christoph Evian, who was the CEO of ICG. Oh right. So we're the wow. three amigos. And so we've sort of we juggle it between us um as to who's doing what. But um next year the, this year, I'm sorry, this year this academic year, um, Florence basically passing the ball. So yeah. we're going to have to do it or I'm going to have to do it. So, Oh, good. It's rewarding, I assume, or you wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great. It's actually, it's probably the, I'd say it's the hardest thing I do. Really? Yeah. Because you, when you walk in there, you've got a hundred, hundred in the class. Um, you've got everything from like the Morgan Stanley associate to a West End actress. <laughs> Right. And you've got to find out how you're going to navigate this so yeah. that they both get it, mm. right? And it's going to be very different in mm. their level of background, level of understanding. They're all very bright, but they're all from, from very different backgrounds. Mm. And you've got to sort of level set it and um, and go from there. So it's it's quite, it's, it's de I come back, it's a, and it's as the way we teach it. We teach the two streams back to back. So it's two and a half hours per class and there's like so two and a half hours a half an hour break for a sticky bun and then another two and a half hours mm. so at the end of that i am wow. wrecked yeah wrecked and i can barely speak um so it's quite intense but it's only one course so you know when it's on it's busy and when it's not on yeah, yeah. we're in sort of recovery modes and figuring out we try and do a new thing every year so we try and because the content you know, with 12, basically 12 classes, 10 classes, 10 to 12 classes, depends on the class. We're always looking to roll them. So, you know, we'll try to drop something that's old and bring something yeah. in that's new. And so the, la the last big thing we did was EQT, which was last year, which was great. They yeah. were super generous. They were like, we're very happy to help. And what do you need? Yeah, you've got to keep it fresh just for you as well, to keep you on your toes. As yeah, well. and, it, and it also, because it, it does get, it, some of the stuff gets out of date. And, yeah. and so we try and, you know, that, so that's what we do in the downtime when we're not on the class is like, okay, what are we, what are we missing? And so that, I mean, again, you're like, it's an interesting observation around what people want more of. So the, what they want more of is the venture growthy stuff. Right. Which is why the bolts, we put the boldest thing in this year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's what, that's what the customers, our customers are interested in is more of that. So it's not so much the private equity stuff. It's more the oh, venture yeah. growth. But no, it's good. Great. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. All right. Pleasure. Lovely to see Pleasure you. as ever. Yeah. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel 
for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.